Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Last, sitting in today for Charlie Sykes, who is out on assignment. Today is Monday, June 11th. We are one day away from the big North Korean summit in Singapore, and I am joined with uh, Ethan Epstein. Ethan, how are you, sir? Good. And in fact, it's already tomorrow in Singapore. So so we're just hours away then. Yep. So walk me through just to start the timing of what's going on there. Uh, when when does stuff actually start? Because this is like watching the Olympics on some massive time delay where we'll be totally out of phase with everything over here in the States. Right. Except if, if you're one of you know those of us who keep uh, bizarre hours. Uh, so the, the real thing is going to start going at about 9.30 a.m. in Singapore, which happens to be 9.30 p.m. on the East Coast of the United States. It's a very clean uh, 12-hour time difference, which actually makes things easier term to figure things out. There's going to be a bilateral meeting. Uh, it's not literally bilateral insofar as there are going to be two translators in there. But beyond that, it's just going to be the, the two presidents, the marshal and the president. And then they're going to have a lunch. Um, and then I think they both plan to leave Singapore later that day. So this is all done in one day, essentially like, what is it? Like we're talking like six or eight hours worth of stuff happening. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's a reason for that, which is that all of the spade work has, in fact, already been done. I mean, Mike Pompeo made two trips to North Korea. Uh, his spy master counterpart, Kim Yong-chul, in North Korea came to uh, New York and Washington. And, and I think that was where the real negotiation was going on. And what they were doing was basically establishing what this meeting is going to simply ratify. Um, so I think the, the true uh, there's a big mis- sort of misemphasis, misplaced emphasis, but you know I'm going to call it a misemphasis because I like that uh, on uh, Trump the negotiator, but it's already been negotiated, and I think we're, we're we kind of have a good idea of what's going to come out of this. So, so essentially, the opposite of like the DACA negotiations, where Trump met with the Democrats, shot from the hip, agreed to a bunch of stuff, and then like three weeks later, the White House actually staked out a real position. Uh, everything that we, the White House already knows what's going on. We assume, we hope, right? And this, there, there's going to be no actual news happen. It'll be news because it'll be released to the rest of the world for the first time. But there won't be any actual breaking things happening. Fingers crossed. Yes. That, I mean, if this, you know, if the missiles launch at dawn, then let's go back and delete this podcast. But my, uh, my strong suspicion is that this is simply going to be almost a rubber stamp of the diplomatic spade work that has already occurred both in Pyongyang and in DC with the sort of, you know, second tier, uh, you know, the, the, or the, the state department types. Okay, so this is, <laughs> I think Mick Jagger had a line about about improvisation. He said, you know, at this level, improvisation is another word for mistake. <laughs> so every everything should be done. There should be no surprises. If there are surprises, uh, then we've already done something wrong. Yeah. Uh, so you and, you and I were just sort of talking about this this morning, uh, and you made the, the point which uh, is absolutely worth making now, which is that this, <laughs> this is not about Trump. Right. I mean, here in America, like everything that exists is about Trump. The NFL is about Trump. The Tony Awards are about Trump. There's a high school shooting. The shooting is about Trump. Uh, I I think it is probably a reasonably safe bet that whatever the media reactions are to whatever happens there today slash tomorrow, it will be somehow portrayed as being about Trump. But it isn't in this case. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the primary actors here. 
are, are utterly and completely North Korea. I mean, this what happens, what, what the relationship between North Korea and the United States, the relationship between North Korea and South Korea, North Korea and Japan, all of that is entirely dependent on the decisions that the Kim regime makes. And in fact, that the man himself, Kim Jong-un, makes. We're talking about a nearly complete autocracy with with the leader directing policy on every level. And I think, uh, you know, we can react to it, but the determining factor is going to be what precisely Kim Jong-un wants to do with his country. So <laughs> this is the, the I want to talk about this only because it, it fascinates me. Uh, my view, and I think you and I, basically think about this the same way, has long been that the American foreign policy establishment's view of the North Korean problem was was simply wrong, uh, that there is no inducement you can give to a regime like the Kim regime to give up nuclear weapons, because if you just game everything out from their perspective, becoming a nuclear power really is the most important thing in the world, uh, right? I mean, once you become a nuclear power, uh, there, there is no historical precedent for a nuclear power being undermined <laughs> and toppled by the United States. The dangerous part, if you are a rogue regime, is the process of becoming a nuclear power. And during that point, you can wind up, you know, an international community can solve, can show resolve, or they can try to take out your capabilities. Or, but once you have that capability, you're basically safe. Uh, do you agree generally that? I mean, am I? Putting this yeah. the right way, yes, from their perspective, they'd be crazy to, de- to denuclearize. Not only do I agree, I, I mean, I think they're fundamentally correct, too. I mean, the invasion of Iraq had a lot of consequences, you know, and they're not just limited to the Middle East. I mean, I think what that showed to North Korea was that just the point you've made the only way to truly prevent an invasion is to have a completed nuclear program, not one that's just sort of in the works or actually, frankly, in the case of Iraq, non-existent, as we later learned. Uh, it was it was a lesson that they were smart to take, I would say. And that's obviously, I'm not making a normative judgment. They're, I think they're horrible, they're horrible people, but it was, uh, it, it certainly is a vital ingredient to maintaining their regime, yes. Yeah, and this this view that, like, well, if you just sweeten the pot enough, they will, you know, they'll eventually make the right choice and all this. Again, that's all, it has always struck me that the Western foreign policy establishment looks at this looks at this situation purely through Western eyes and not through the, the eyes of the North Korean regime, where, again, it's a a perfectly reasonable and rational strategic calculation that they've made. I think there's another side to it, too. So there's the negative examples like Iraq and, of course, the Ballyhood Libya model, which uh, John Bolton mentioned. There's also Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan sort of became a rogue state when it when it became nuclear. And here we are a couple decades later. And, you know, they we have our tangled relations with Pakistan. They're still huge recipients of foreign aid. And we've basically accepted that they thumbed their nose at the international order and they became a nuclear power. And uh, you know, the, c'est la vie. And I, I think we'll probably see a similar thing, for example, with the annexation of Crimea. Like eventually we sort of forget about these things and you sort of readmit countries into kind of the, the global club of nations. And I think, again, that might have been in the correct calculation that North Korea made. You know, eventually we'll stop being mad about it. Yeah, I mean, the liberal, liberal democracies are by definition pragmatic yeah. in, in their foreign relations. They can't hold grudges because the, the stakeholders change so often. Yep. Uh, and so I get, 
so we, we basically agree that North Korea would be kind of crazy from their perspective to denuclearize. Uh, we had a very good piece uh, up on our website a couple weeks ago by Jeremy Bernstein, who's a nuclear physics guy, who made the point that even the definition of denuclearization itself is tricky. I mean, we you know what did we do when we denuclearized Libya? We took, you know, John Bolton that we took like half of two centrifuges and two guys, uh, and that was it. And they had you know four pounds of plutonium. And North Korea, who a who knows how many actual devices they already have? Uh, who knows how many centrifuges they have? But also they have human capital. They have people. They have, they have hundreds, hundreds of hundreds nuclear of scientists. Figured yes. this out, and so you're going to put those guys in Oak Ridge just in detainment for forever? Right. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Um, well, so, Kim Jong Un could have a more brutal solution to that, probably, but yeah. <laughs> he will himself agree to denuclearize. God, that's horrible. Uh, so, to play devil's advocate against ourselves, if you were going to make the case that you could put it, it could create a strategic situation in which it was legitimately within the Kim's Kim regime's interest to denuclearize. That rests on the idea that Seoul can be held hostage via conventional weapons, correct? It does. And it's it's not just Seoul, it's Japan too, which is well within range of their short-term and medium-term, uh, medium-range missiles, and you don't need a nuclear weapon to kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, a disturbing possibility that Lindsey Graham has glibly alluded to multiple times. Luckily, most American policymakers are not as glib as, as Lindsey Graham, and I think uh, we're not willing to accept the death of millions uh, by conventional warfare in South and in uh, South Korea and Japan. And I, I think that's right. It it creates a permanent hostage situation. Of course, that's only because of what the nature of that regime is. I mean, you could look at anything. As a, I mean, is Toronto a hostage of uh, policymakers in Washington, D.C.? I mean, sort of. We could destroy Toronto, but because of the character of our regime, although perhaps not at this moment where we really might destroy Toronto, uh, it, it makes all the difference in the world. So if you have a less bellicose North Korean regime that still maintains some sort of ability to do great damage to its neighbors, that's a much less terrible situation than if you still have the Kim family in there. Right. Although it is... Uh, I would say often you don't have a strategic, a point of real strategic significance, like what is it, 90 miles away from the artillery? I mean, the fewer, Seoul, more yeah. like 40 or 50. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Seoul is located so quickly that you could with <laughs> with artillery even. Yes. Uh, you can reach it in ways that that make it sort of a unique situation. Um, That's true. Yeah. So what are you I guess I don't think we've talked about this on the show before, but we've talked about when we were just shooting the breeze. What people, I think, fail to realize when they think about the North Korean situation is, if anything, people undercount how horrible and intractable the problem is. Mm -hmm. Because if, if, if the answer is that Donald Trump talks the Kim regime into suicide, and he, he makes them such a fabulous deal that they just decide they're going to crash the planes on the way back and let their country be free, uh, there is no easy or painless way to reintegrate North Korea. That's not the end of the problem. Right. That's, then that's, the that's not the whole new set of problems. And I mean, if you just look at you, I think the case you and I have made is if you begin with just how difficult reintegration was for East Germany. Yep. 
And I don't think you can actually compare the North Korea situation to the East German situation. You can I compare mean, in orders of magnitude. Can, yeah, I mean, you can compare an ant to a tiger. I, the the I believe the GDP difference between East and uh, West Germany at the time of the end of the Iron Curtain was something like between five and ten per capita. With North Korea and South Korea, it's fifty. And we have a real live example of how hard this is going to be with the uh, the refugees from North Korea that resettle in South Korea. And keep in mind that these are probably the most equipped to succeed in South Korea because they've managed to escape from North Korea. I mean, they've already made a harrowing journey. They have a certain uh, you know, will to live. So they, they escape into China. Oftentimes they have to hide in China. It might take a couple of years for them to get to South Korea. They have a remarkably hard time integrating into South Korean society. They have a very hard time working. They have a very hard time creating social relations. They have a very hard time basic tasks they require training in i've interviewed some of these people they're all happy to not be in north korea but they are not having an easy time in south korea now imagine doing that 25 million times i mean it's <laughs> it, i i want it to happen it's it's a better case than the status quo but it by no means will it be easy and those are just the individuals i mean at the That's institutional level it. Right. I mean, the, there is no institutional, there is no political philosophy in North Korea. I mean, the, the, it is. the thing about North Korea is it's not a real state. I mean, there are these. No, it's an, it's an insane asylum. Yeah. I mean, there's Potemkin yeah. apparatus that allegedly make it a nation state. Like they have government ministries, but they're not real government ministries. They're they're just part of the, the Communist Party, which is itself a, or the Workers Party, which itself is simply a front for the interests of this family. Right. Yeah. That That's all that is. I mean, is it hyperbolic to suggest that. North Korea represents all on its own, maybe the worst humanitarian disaster of like, I don't know, the last thousand years. I mean, it is uh, again, I, I, I feel like as as bad as people make things out to be over there, it all misses the true dimensions of how bad it, it really is. Yeah. And yeah. I. I mean, I I don't know how to get into sort of like contests of what's it's bad. And I think the sort of under everyone knows about the camps. Everyone knows about the starvation that's happened. I think the kind of underrated aspect of it is the psychic terror that has been inflicted on these people for decades. Just the like the destruction of people as individuals. The message that's been drilled into their heads is like, you are not a person worth anything. You exist to serve this man. And it's it's lasted for decades. And can you just imagine the psychological toll that takes on people? No, no, yeah, I can't. It's, it's terrible. So what? Best guess. Where do you where do you think things look like forty eight hours from now, seventy two hours from now? What? I mean, I assume that both sides will declare that it was a success, irrespective. Right? I mean, this sort of baked into the cake or maybe not no i mean do you think we're in for a surprise or do you no, think, I think it's we're gonna smooth? come out with a statement where there are vague intentions laid out uh they will announce their intention to denuclearize the u.s will announce it to, you know a roadmap, if you will towards normalizing relations towards economic aid the real question is going to be what happens over the next two years and i suspect this will break down at some point over the next two years but we're we're entering, if not an era of good feelings, I'd say a couple of days of good feelings. And one last question, and then we'll get out of here. How much is America driving this to? The, I mean, from our side of the of the table, understand what you said about the North Korea being the the prime actor here. But from our side of the table, how much is being driven by American foreign policy, and how much by the foreign policy of the South Koreans? 
and because again, I, th- I think it is underappreciated over here the extent to which they are pursuing their own foreign policy agenda, and which we, uh, I don't know, do do we basically do we get sort of roped along with whatever the South has decided to yeah, do so here? We are in a very odd position vis-a-vis the South and the North, insofar as. The president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, who was elected, by the way, with 41% of the vote, it only happened because it was a three-way race, and they didn't do a runoff, is, I mean, dovish is actually too soft a way to put it. I mean, his his cabinet is stacked with people who are essentially sympathetic to North Korea and have been for decades. They want to do something like a, what they would call a loose sort of confederation between the North and the South, where you lay down arms and you you sort of you give up the fight. Um, and of course, what that does is consign the 25 million North Koreans to eternal hell. Um, so I don't really think it's the moral choice. And no, they're, they're definitely, um, they're they're pushing for this. And, you know, what they want might not necessarily be what we want. So I do think that, and by the way, what the majority of South Koreans want, because again, this is a minority government elected under extraordinary circumstances because of a totally bizarre corruption scandal that had engulfed the the prior president who took fairly conventional view, a a tough view towards the North. History has aligned these three governments at a very odd position right now. And yes, I don't think you should discount uh, what the South is trying to accomplish here um, and that it might down the road conflict with what we want. And I I guess this really does have the the possibility to remake South Korean politics, right? I mean, if this goes either very well or very badly, then the extremist position of the South Korean government, which, as you said, came in with a very narrow plurality, uh, could either be, be borne out yep, or could be exposed as being... I mean, it's one thing to do... When you look back on something like this that is undertaken by a party with very little political support, relatively speaking, and very little popular support to the position itself, uh, if it works out, then it's it's boldness. Right. And if it doesn't work out, it's folly. Yeah. And the type of folly that I assume could essentially remake South Korean politics for a generation. There's another aspect here, too, though, which is that the threats that the Trump administration were issuing all last year about a potential strike on North Korea, including, you know, more than the quote unquote bloody nose, but even a decapitation strike scared even the most hawkish South Koreans. And, and you know, I not without cause were I living in Seoul, I'd be very concerned about those, frankly, kind of um, scary sounding threats, too. And that really pushed uh, moon to to get this going too. So it was it was partially in reaction to to the Trump rhetoric as well. Uh, well, uh, so we are another few hours away from knowing something more. You'll probably be ragooned back into doing this show again tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's hope there's no fire nor fury. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll be back to do this all again tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs>